Friends, if you'd open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 18. We've got four key verses this morning in our sermon, or key passages, and they'll all be in the Gospel of Matthew, but Matthew 18 is where we will begin as we consider our theme for the year, which is our purpose for our church, and that is growing Christ followers. Remember, we use that as a noun. We are growing Christ followers, but we also use it as a verb. We do the work of growing Christ followers. And so, growing Christ followers, our purpose. When we consider what the Scripture has to say about purpose, I'm reminded of two different Psalms. In Psalm 138, verse 8, It says, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. And it speaks directly to God and it says, your love is eternal. Do not abandon the work of your hands. God, I know you've got a plan for me. Carry it through to completion is what the psalmist is saying there. In Psalm 57 verse 2, it says, I call to the most high God, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. We don't often consider our purpose as individuals. We just live life. We breathe air. We pay our bills. We show up to work. We do what we're supposed to. And consider those questions of why do I exist? What on earth did God put me here for other than to be a good person and to have kids and take care of them and retire someday or something like that? What's my purpose? And by extension, when we know what our purpose is, what am I supposed to do And how am I supposed to do it? Is there something that should be different about my life because I'm a believer in Jesus? Growing Christ followers is our purpose as a church, and that's backed up by our five values. And those five values you see on our website and some other places there. And the first is Bible engagement, that in order to grow as a Christ follower, we've got to have daily Regular time with the Bible. The second is a worshipful lifestyle that not just attending on Sunday morning, but the way we live our life is an act of worship to God. The third is intentional relationship because God did not put you here to be a Lone Ranger believer. And even though you're here on Sunday morning, you need to be a part of a group, whether it's a Sunday school class or a small group or accountable to somebody, to be encouraged by somebody, to be taught, challenged by somebody. And those relationships take intentionality. You've got to do that. You can't just go home and sit. Whether you're introvert or extrovert, you've got to be in relationship with others. And the fourth of our values is gifted service. God's given every believer spiritual gifts. We say that when you are born, you get natural talents and abilities. And when you are born again and become a believer in Jesus, you are given spiritual gifts. And God uses those natural talents and abilities plus your spiritual gifts in all your experience to make you who you are, your shape for ministry that you might serve Him. And then the fifth value that we have is gospel sharing. The gospel is the good news of Jesus. And without us sharing the good news of Jesus, other people won't know. They won't be saved to abundant and eternal life. And they won't have the opportunity to even become a Christian. And we are cheated out of the opportunity to grow as Christians when we don't share the gospel because we're not challenged then with the hard questions that people who are not yet believers will ask us. And as we consider those things, we'll get there in just a moment, but a quick commercial for starting next week. Next week, we're going to start a new sermon series, Revive Us Again, and it's doing three things that I had prayed for and hoped it would do, and then I finally found the answer, and I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. 
And the one was that we might preach a sermon series in the fall uh, from the Old Testament. The second was that it would be about revival or renewal, personally and corporately. And the third was that it would be expository in nature. Then I found the answer this week. Pulled a book off my shelf that I went, oh, I hadn't read this book yet. And I went, there it is. And so we're going to take a survey of revivals in the Old Testament. When God's people had wandered off in their own way and they had a point in time of repentance and said, we got to stop right here and we got to come back and go the way God's called us to go. What happened there? And what was it that God did there? And we want to do that through seven sermons this fall together. And that starts next week. But today, we're talking about purpose. Our scripture today comes from next week's sermon, and that's Psalm 85. And that's the scripture memory verse of the month for um, uh, September. And let's say that together. Psalm 85, 4. Now restore us again, O God of our salvation. Put aside your anger against us once more. Psalm 85, 4. Pray with me. Our Father, as we come to this time of studying your word and we consider a scripture like that, it says, restore us again and put aside your anger once more. And part of us, we want to go, well, gee whiz, what kind of God is this? But if we're honest, we think about what kind of people are we? And that we just can't help taking control of our own lives. And it seems like we're addicted to sin of one type or another. And that we do need to continually repent before you and ask for your restoration. And ask that you would put aside your anger and turn to us in love. And offer us grace. And Father, in that day but for the way we live our lives. And we ask that you'd speak to us now as we open your word, scripture by scripture. It's in Jesus' name, amen. So we're studying purpose today. And when we think about our purpose as a church, there's maybe four ways we could go about that, uh, four different questions we might ask. And the first would be, what is it that Jesus did? If Jesus is the Christ, and we are Christians, little Christ, what is it that we see in his life that would be an example for us of how we ought to live? And the second question we might ask ourselves, and we're not going on the, you get that in a minute, but the uh, second one is, uh, how does the Bible describe the church? What images, what pictures does the Bible use for the church? The third is, what did the New Testament church do? And then the fourth one is, what did Jesus tell us to do? And that's where we're going to begin to look at today. What did Jesus tell us to do? So of these four different questions of what's the church supposed to be, what is our purpose and our doing, we start with this question. What does Jesus tell us to do? You've got four different scripture passages published in your notes And uh, apologies if you're normally using an iPad and your iPad's not working because our Wi-Fi is down. Apparently, it's Wi-Fi 
our, 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 what do you call it, internet service provider must be down in the area because we've tried everything with our uh, modem, we've tried everything with our router, so you can pull an old-fashioned Bible out of the pew uh, and you can find it there or look on with your neighbor and be friendly. Uh, and obviously, if you have a mobile phone, you probably still got a service there uh, with your data, but apologies if you depend on our Wi-Fi. But as we turn this morning uh, to our first passage of Scripture that we want to study a little more in depth, that's Matthew chapter 18, verses 18 and 19. Matthew chapter 18, verses 18 and 19. Well, 20 as well, excuse me. Jesus says there, I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. An amazing promise for us there. Verse 19. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. Wow, this one's loaded with implication and can use some study. But look at verse 20. For where two or more, two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. There I am with them. Your point there is that we are to gather and pray, to gather and pray. That's what this is talking about. When we come together and we ask God to do something for His kingdom, to glorify His name and His purpose, and we ask Him to do that, that is prayer. And notice what it says there. And when two of you on earth agree, in verse 20, when two or three of you come together in my name, it's gathering together in prayer. We have the ability, and we should pray individually. And we should pray in a focused manner, and we should pray in a dedicated manner. But what this is talking about is praying together as believers in Jesus. But notice what it follows. You've got your Bible there with you. Look up in verse 15. Verse 15 It says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him your fault between just the two of you. You've heard this one before. And if somebody sins against you, they've even offended you. You're to speak to them one on one. Verse 16, but if he will not listen, take one or two others along with you so that every matter may be established by the testimony of three, two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen then, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. In other words... Still have a relationship with him, but not in the church and not at the same depth, seeking to redeem him and share the gospel with him to change his heart and change his life. So in the midst of this idea of when someone sins about you, here's the rules for confronting them with their sinfulness. Then Jesus immediately adds to it, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And what you agree about in prayer will be done for you. And when two or three of you are gathered together in my name, I will be present with you. Do you get an idea, part of what we might should pray about when we come together? We should pray about our relationships with one another. We should pray about what is God doing within us and how is the devil trying to separate us that we might ask God to Heal us and restore us. That there shouldn't be those type of divisions in the body that we should gather and pray. You're in Matthew. Turn a few pages over to Matthew chapter 11. 
Matthew chapter 11, and we consider what Jesus did when we think about gathering to prayer. In Matthew chapter 11, and verse 28, 29, and 30, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is telling us as individuals, when we've got trouble, we're supposed to come and pray to him. You've probably got somebody in your life that when you've got a question, they're your go-to, right? Someone you want to talk to and say, what do you think about this? Did I handle this the right way? Can you give me some advice? Can you give me some encouragement? Maybe it depends on the situation. If it's a work problem, you might talk to your boss or a mentor at work. If it's a family problem, you might even talk to a parent, no matter how old you are. If it's any other kind of problem, you maybe have a friend that can help sort that out for you. But Jesus says to us, when we're weary and burdened, we're to come to him. So he said in what we read in chapter 18, that when we have problems with others and when we have a need, we're to come to him as a group. And he says to us in chapter 11, as it's recorded, that when we have a problem as an individual, we're to come to him and pray. And even when we consider this idea of gather and pray, and we look at the model of the first church, just write down on your outline, Acts 5.42. Granted, you could write down many more scriptures than that. You could just write down the book of Acts. Because if you look in the book of Acts and you just read through it, And read the story of what's happening in the relationship of God with His people in this growing new thing called a church. Every time they're together, they pray. Every time they have a problem, they pray. Every time there's a conflict, they pray. Every time there's an obstacle, they pray. They gather and pray, gather and pray, gather and pray. Yes, they did other things when they gathered, but prayer was part of their worship. But a couple things we need to remember about prayer before we move on. David Burton said it this way. He said, the ultimate purpose of prayer is not to get something, but to be with someone. Someone with a capital S. The ultimate purpose of prayer is not to get something, but to be with someone. Francis Chan said, we think of prayer as a means to an end, but authentic, passionate prayer is the goal. Authentic, passionate prayer is the goal. It is you spending time with the God of the whole universe in a manner in which he asks us to spend time with him. That prayer that I've, that prayer quote that I've read you so many times that I like because of what it implies by Samuel Chadwick, the revivalist and preacher of a hundred years ago, he said, the habit of prayer implies a certain attitude towards life. The habit of prayer implies a certain attitude toward life. It's when you are humbling yourself to say, God, these are still the circumstances, the issues, the challenges, and the problems of my life. But God, I realize before you that these problems, circumstances, issues, and challenges of my life are not mine to deal with. They're yours to deal with, God. And the primary way you choose to deal with those is to work in my life and change my attitude and change my mind and inform me how I should relate to each and every one of those persons. I'm finding it a little weird to stand up here and preach after five weeks when I sat on this stool, you know. Remember the, or four weeks, the past four weeks, I sat up here and I had somebody right beside me uh, that was sharing their story. What was the common theme of their stories? 
The common theme was God spoke to them through his word when they had a challenge or a problem. And God spoke to them through prayer. And in this intimacy of relationship, God did something with them. Your question there asks you, how often and how thoroughly do I pray with others? It might beg the question, how often and thoroughly do I pray on my own? But if God tells us to gather and pray, to get together with others and lift our prayer requests to Him, how often and how thoroughly do I pray with others? Most of us could probably do a better job if we're married of praying with our spouse. I could. Most of us could do a better job of praying more intentionally about things with our children. Most of us could do a better job at seeking out others to pray with about challenges. How often and thoroughly do I pray with others? God longs for a relationship with us. And He invites us to pray to Him and to pray with others. Rick Warren said it this way. He said, many people miss out on so much because they only pray by themselves. Yet when Jesus gave us an outline for prayer, he spoke about praying together. There is power in group prayer. Now, if you're sitting here going, okay, I I believe you, Pastor Aaron. Who should I pray with? Well, you can pray in your Sunday school class. You can pray with your Sunday school class. You can pray with your family. We have prayer meetings at church that happen on Thursday morning at 6 a.m. There's a prayer meeting where we pray together, and it meets right back in here. If 6 a.m. is too early for you, we have one Thursday at 11. If uh, 11 doesn't work because you're uh, in the middle of your work day or anything else, then uh, Wednesday evening we have one as well that starts at 6.30, uh, Bible study prayer meeting. Maybe there's another one that needs to start. Maybe you need to be a part of starting it as you lead others to consider praying. So remember our purpose today. Our purpose was to establish what is the church's purpose and therefore what is our purpose as individuals. And our first point is that we should gather and pray as a church. Part of what we should be known as is a house of prayer, a place of prayer. Let's move to the second point on your outline. And the second key scripture is Matthew 22, Matthew 22, verse 36 through 40. Matthew 22, verse 36 through 40. This passage of Scripture is known as, and your Bible may even label it just above, as the greatest commandment. If you look back in verse 34, you see that Jesus was in a discussion, debate, if you will, and somebody was trying to stump him, that hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees, that's the other political party, got together, They, you know, did their little unholy huddle and decided, how are we going to try to stump Jesus? Those guys couldn't get him. Can we get him? And one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? They had 623 positive and negative commandments that they had written down. So that's a lot to choose from. Verse 37, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. I'm sure the guys that asked it would have went, oh, man, why did we have to ask that question? We should have known he'd say that. It's like the answer that beats all the other answers. Love God with everything you've got. 
But then Jesus being Jesus stands them on their heads when he says, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The first answer, they would have just gone, shucks, he got us. The second answer, they probably would have come at Jesus with their fist raised. Why did you have to say something like that? Are you trying to make us look bad? Well, they were trying to make him look bad. And I don't think he was trying purposely to make them look bad. He was trying to teach truth. And when truth encounters falsehood, falsehood often loses. Your point there is that we are to love God and love others with everything I am. I'm to love God and love others with everything I am. That's what that scripture says. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. To love God and love others with everything you are. We talk about that being otherish around here. And remember, otherish is six words and three phrases. It's God powered. It's something you can't do on your own. It's agape love. It's a type of love that only God can do. It's other focused. It's not about you and not about what you want, not about what you need. It's about meeting the needs of others. And it's self-sacrificing. It's spending yourself on behalf of others because you've got God's power to do it. So it's not what you can do. It's what God will do through you. You consider what Jesus did. You consider what Jesus did. He speaks in John chapter 10. I'm going to go over and read it. If you want to join me there, you're welcome. John chapter 10 Verse 14, so Jesus, as our model of how to love others, says in John chapter 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. And he says, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He says, the hired hand's not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees a wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But Jesus says in John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Jesus is saying, I'm going to do anything for others in need. What about you? If you're in John, turn over a page or two to John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. Jesus says there, a new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. How did Jesus love? He loved in that self-sacrificing, otherish sort of way. God-powered, other-focused, self-sacrificing. He would eventually, and very soon after he said these words, be crucified and give himself as a ransom for many. And then he says in verse 35, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The evidence of the fact that we are Christ followers is that we love others. It's not that you attend church. It's not that you have a cross necklace or a Jesus fish on the back of your car or listen to K-Love. The evidence that you are a believer in Jesus is that you have love for others. Who's the most difficult person in your life? Do you have love for that person? Is the evidence of your following Jesus a little challenged by some people more than others? Mine is. Some people are easier to love than others. That's why I asked this application question. Who do I struggle to love more? God or other people? And what will it take to change that? Sometimes it's not people we struggle to love because people we're... 
you know, wise enough that we say they're fallible like me. They're fallen, they're sinful, you know, they make mistakes. But then based on our experience in life, either with God himself or with a person in authority, that then we transfer that feeling of how we deal with authority to God, we might really struggle to love God. And that's legitimate and that's okay. And if you're there, I'm glad that you're here. And God can handle your questions, and I would encourage you to seek God personally through Bible study and prayer, but also I would encourage you to add a more mature believer to come alongside you to help counsel you, to help encourage you, to help you work through this issue of your challenge of loving God. Maybe your greatest struggle is loving others, because there's some people in your life that are just quite difficult. I've said it before and I'll say it again. There's times in my life when I wish I had a magic Bible. There's no such thing as a magic Bible and every mention of magic in the Bible is that it's wrong. But I wish I could just wave my Bible over somebody's head and poof, make it all better. If you've got a family member that because they're your family, you've got to keep seeing them and keep being in a relationship with them, but they just make everything so difficult. I wish I could just poof, make them better. But God doesn't give us a magic Bible. We can't poof and make them all better. He calls us to love them. Not just in spite of who they are, but to love them the way He loves us because of who we are. Because we are sinful. Because we are fallen. Because we're going to hurt other people. Because we're going to disobey God. He loves us. In order to bring us back to Him. That requires humility. It requires surrender. It requires sacrifice. It requires time, perseverance, patience. The hardest work you may ever do is loving others that treat you in an unlovable manner. But it may be the greatest work you ever do because it is when you are most like Jesus. We talk about our purpose Our purpose should be to look like Jesus. Let's move on to the third point of your outline. The third point of your outline comes from Matthew chapter 25. Sir, if you're in John, turn back over to Matthew chapter 25 with me. Matthew 25 and verse 31 is this amazing parable Jesus tells about the sheep and the goats. I love that old Keith Green song that just parallels the scripture with Keith's piano playing and humor. But I'll just read it to you. I won't sing Keith Green. Starting up in verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and the angels come with Him, He'll sit on His throne in heavenly glory. He's talking about judgment. All the nations, all the peoples, that is, will be gathered before Him and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those who are on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you before the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave Me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave Me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited Me in. Verse 36, I needed clothes, and you clothed Me. I was sick, and you looked after Me. I was in prison, and you came to visit Me. You've got to love the answer in verse 37. Um, Lord, then the righteous will answer, it says, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? Um, When did we invite you 
as a stranger and invite you in. Or needing clothes and clothe you. When did we see you in prison or go to visit you? Maybe by my emphasis, you pick up the implication. Verse 40. The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. They're saying, Jesus, we didn't see you needing clothes. Jesus, we didn't see you needing a visit. Jesus, we didn't see you in any kind of need. But Jesus says, it's not when you did it for me. It's when you did it for one of the least of these. And your point there is to meet the needs of the least of these. To meet the needs of the least of these. And I know that sometimes this is challenging. Brian Blackwell, a former church member of ours, who, God bless him, came up to watch the Huskers football game last night and got to hang out in the stadium with us for a couple hours. Brian and I were talking just yesterday about benevolent needs and how to handle those. And as an individual, when you see somebody that needs something, or as a church, when somebody walks in our door or calls us and asks for help paying a light bill or gas bill or their rent or needing food, And so you've got to be wise, obviously, in the way you meet the needs of others. But we've always got in the back of our mind that Jesus says that we are like him when we meet the needs of others. And it demonstrates that we are his sheep, that we are Christ's followers, when we are sharing of the resources he's given us to meet the needs of others. The Bible does, in fact, say in Philippians 4.19, you might want to write that one down, Philippians 4.19, that my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. And so he desires us out of his supply for our needs to help meet the needs of others. Jeff Org, president of our Gateway Seminary out in Southern California, talks about ARMS for ministry, and it's an acronym, so write down A-R-M-S. He says, when we think about meeting the needs of the least of these, that we should accept people for who they are, or accept people as they are. So that's the A, accept people as they are. The R is to relate to people on their terms. Not everybody's going to be like us, and frankly, the world would be a boring and pretty conflicted place if everybody's like us. God made us different on purpose, so we need to relate to people on their terms. That's the R. The M is to meet the needs of people. Yes, we know they need Jesus as their Savior, but if they have some physical or worldly need and we have the ability to meet it, we should see if we can meet that need, or do we know somebody that can meet it for them? That's the M, A-R-M, and then the S is serve people with abandon. Serve people with abandon. Now, we kind of wish Dr. Org wouldn't have put that with abandon part in there because we're like, I'll serve people a little bit. I'll serve people as much as I have time. I'll serve people as much as I have schedule. But when you consider how Jesus loved and how Jesus served, he gave his very life for us. When you look at the example of the first church, what did they do? In Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through 35, it said they gathered together, they prayed, they worshiped, and they shared so that no one among them had a need. In Acts chapter 6, verse 1 through 7, where we get deacons from, you know, they set aside these deacons to meet the needs of others in their body. And they even had a means within the very first organized church of meeting the needs of the church family. And so that purpose for a church and that purpose for our life is even exampled right there that we should meet the needs of others. Going back to 
org's arms, accepting, relating, meeting, and serving, you're literally putting your arms around people. So your question is, whose needs am I meeting? Whose needs am I meeting? Well, Aaron, um, I guess I meet the needs of people as they present themselves to me. Great. Are you in an ongoing relationship with somebody that God's put in your life that you know they're needy and they probably even drain you? And it might be that they're emotionally needy. It might be that they need direction or advice. It might be that they're somehow needy of finances or somehow needy of help or support. And you're able to meet them, even on a regular basis or an ongoing basis. Amen. Whose needs are we meeting? Because Jesus says that a distinctive of believers in Him and a church that follows Him is that we should meet the needs of others. Every kind of need you can imagine. So that's a third indication of our purpose. Let's look at the fourth one. The fourth one in Matthew 28. Some of us go, oh man, Matthew 28. We know this passage of Scripture. It's the Great Commission. But we need to know it. And we need to be reminded of it as our purpose. Matthew 28, verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I command you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Seth, will you go back to that scripture? When you look at that scripture, and he says, therefore, go... And make disciples of all nations. You've probably heard me say before that the, the main verb there is that phrase that we have is make disciples. It's best translated actually as win disciples. And it was for a number of years and then for some reasons translators moved over to make rather than win. But it's, it's win disciples, that it's the act of evangelism. And so you have... Therefore, go, you go in order to win disciples. And then that phrase, all nations, is actually all peoples, every tribe, every tongue, every ethno-linguistic group. And then baptizing them, you baptize them because you've won them in the name of the Father and the Holy Son and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, you teach them because you've won them. And they've been won to become Christ followers, disciples, students, learners, apprentices of Jesus because you went. You baptized them because they were one. You teach them because they were one. And you need to remember that what are the ends to either side of this? The beginning of it is Jesus saying, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. The end of it is that Jesus is saying, I am always with you to the very end of the age. And the bookends of this great commandment to win disciples is that Jesus has all authority and Jesus is always with you. So we should be reminded that it's in Jesus' power. So your point there is that we are to win new Christ followers and to help them grow. To win new Christ followers and to help them grow. Now, don't get worried about and think, oh, I'm not an evangelist or I don't know how to do that. 
A friend of mine, Richard Hamlet, says this. He says, evangelism is not saving the world, but rather proclaiming the gospel so that sinners in the world can be saved. It's not saving the world, but proclaiming the gospel. Notice he said proclaiming. You can't just live as a good Christian and expect people to come to faith in Christ. You have to share the message of Jesus as well. You have to preach the gospel to them. Jesus, when he identified his mission in Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19, write that down. He quoted from Isaiah and he said that the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the good news, to set captives free, to heal the blind. Jesus said later in that chapter that he was to go and preach in other cities. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, he said that his ministry was to proclaim the gospel and healing for people. And he told the church to do the same thing. In Matthew 24, he says we're to preach the gospel to all peoples, to all nations. In John 20, 21, he said, So send I you, as the Father has sent me, so send I you to share his love with others. In Acts 1, 8, he said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes in order that you might be my witnesses to proclaim to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, Jerusalem, where you live, Judea, the neighborhood you live, Samaria, your next door neighbors, the ends of the earth, that we are to be a part of winning others to Jesus. So your application question is how and how often do I share the good news of Jesus? How do I help others grow in Christ? If that's some of you might be sitting here going, you know, Pastor Aaron, I've never been trained in evangelism. If that's you, would you like send me an email, Aaron at SouthviewBaptist.org or just Say, hey, Aaron, I need to learn some evangelism strategy. I won't sign you up for a class or anything like that, but I can hand you a book. I can point you to a website. I can teach you something real easier. Maybe it is that we do need a class. Maybe there's eight or ten of you that are going to say, Pastor Aaron, we need a simple way to share the gospel. Maybe we need to you know, start a, 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 a way to train people uh, in sharing their faith again that will give you the right scriptures and walk you through and give you some practice. How and how often do I share the good news of Jesus? So that's the first part, the sharing the gospel, winning others to Him. But then the second part is how do I help others grow in Christ once they have believed Jesus as their Savior and Lord? How have I helped them grow? As we consider our life, as we consider our church, as you consider that idea of living on purpose, that we're to gather together and pray as believers, that we're to love others and love God with everything we have, that we're to meet the needs of others based on God's provision for us and through us, and that we're to share the gospel with others in order to win them to a personal saving relationship with Jesus and grow them up in Him. We need to remember that we should make the gospel explicit. That we have to speak words of life and truth. That we have to invite people to consider Jesus. To confess their sins to Jesus. To trust Him as their Savior and Lord. And although we should lead lives of exemplary moral character. We must also speak words of gospel invitation to the people without Christ in our lives. Let's pray together.
Father in heaven, as you've spoken to us today by your word, we're challenged with who we are and who you want us to be. And that our being flows from, our doing flows from our being and what we do and how we live. And it's our prayer, God, as we consider as a church family how to live our lives, that a church family is made up of individual believers, that if we need to surrender something to you, if we need to have you change something about us, that we do that right now. And Father, as I prayed earlier, I pray again for anyone here who's never trusted Christ as their Savior and Lord. Maybe today is the day that they will say, I need to follow Jesus. I need to become a Christ follower. And then I think, Father, about those of us that are here that are believers in Jesus. But maybe you're calling us to some fresh surrender to say, yes, I'm going to do that thing that you've called me to. Maybe that surrender is to lead somebody else, to teach somebody else. Maybe that's a new ministry in the church. Maybe you're calling someone to commit their lives to become a pastor, a missionary, a minister. Whatever it is, God, would we obey you even now? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.